If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. became an excuse to really put women in their place in society, a shocking way of doing so. And women were already subservient to men, but this really just took it to a different level altogether. That was Tracy Borman discussing her new book about the history of witches. They appeal to us because they show similarities between medieval people and modern people, but they also show great um, differences. And that was Deborah Thorpe on medieval letter writing. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, for the Kindle Fire, for Google Play and for Zinio. For details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The witch hunting mania of the 16th and 17th centuries was an infamous period of British history. Little is known, however, about the lives of many of the women caught up in this craze. In her new book, historian Tracy Borman explores the story of Margaret, Philippa and Joan Flower, who were accused of bringing about the deaths of two young boys in Leicestershire. Tracy spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton, about what the case can tell us about society in this period, and also explores the links to King James VI and I. What do we talk about when we talk about witches in this particular context? Well, when you imagine a witch today, uh, it's very much, you know, pointy hat, broomstick, that kind of um, wicked witch of the West sort of image that we have. Well, actually, that's extraordinarily old. You think that that's perhaps a Hollywood invention, but uh, witches have been depicted like that for centuries. I came across when studying for for this book, for doing the research, I came across an image from the 15th century of just that kind of witch. And so that's what she looked like. What she did, there were basically 
black witches who try to cause evil and, and harm to their neighbours and friends or um, other members of the community through spells and other sort of dark arts. And then there were white witches who were the opposite. They tried to do only good. They were healers. They would find lost property. They would even detect um, crimes. And so um, th- it was it was very much a contrast between the, the evil in society and then they were, could also be a force for good. Hmm. Do we get a sense of how far this idea had entered the public consciousness? It absolutely was intrinsic to the public consciousness. Um, it had been for, for you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Witches are um, very prominent in the Bible, um, but they'd been around in in Roman and Greek mythology as well. So um, it was absolutely an intrinsic belief within society. Do we know why people in this particular period had become so superstitious? Well, in the 16th and 17th century, it was a time of economic hardship. There were many plagues. Uh, it was great population growth. So there was chronic underemployment. Generally, it was quite a miserable time. So people were looking for a scapegoat. And therefore, witches provided the perfect outlet for their anger, their bitterness at their sort of hard lot in society. So they would look to their local wise woman or white witch, if you like, and, and suddenly there was a, a, a crueler twist on the image of a witch and, and many would be accused of doing all sorts of things from causing crops to fail to murdering children and all untold evils. But the other big factor in this period was, certainly in England, was James I, who had brought his obsession with witchcraft down with him from Scotland when he inherited the throne from Elizabeth. And so suddenly you get an absolute explosion of witch hunting during his reign. It's a fascinating period. And your book touches on a particular case study amongst all this. Um, how did you first learn about Joan, Margaret and Philippa Flower? That's right. Well, what I wanted to do was look at one case in in great detail. And I knew of the flower women's case because they were um, hanged in Lincoln. And that's my hometown. So it's sort of something of a local legend, although not that well known elsewhere. So I wanted to find out more about that. And the more I found out, the just more fascinating it became because it was in many respects an absolutely stereotypical example of a witchcraft trial. You know, these poor women had done very little to deserve suspicion. They were just a bit unpopular in their local community. Misfortune befalls uh, the inhabitants of Beaver Castle in Leicestershire where they worked and the two young sons of the Earl of Rutland die and suddenly the finger of suspicion is pointed at these women and they just find themselves on the wrong end of a witch hunt literally. Mm. So these women worked at the place where this manor's family lived is that right? That's right they worked at Beaver Castle they'd been brought in I think as a form of temporary employment because uh, King James was very fond of, of Beaver Castle he was great friends with the Earl of Rutland and whenever he visited it was all hands on deck and they had to employ more people and I think that's when the flower women were brought in but they were not popular with the other servants um, I think they tried to lord it over them a bit because they used to be much richer than they were uh, they'd fallen on hard times and so they weren't popular. Uh, the other servants wanted an excuse to get rid of them. And so when very conveniently uh, the Earl's two boys fell dangerously ill, of course, everybody started whispering that it was really the curse of those flower women. How did James first get involved in the family, first of all? 
Well, the Rutlands, um, the Earls of Rutland had been associated closely with the crown for quite some time and uh, had always been, you know, very prominent at court and in service to the king or queen. And so there was a good precedent when James came to the throne. He would have known the Manners family. Uh, Beaver Castle was one of the first places he chose to visit upon coming down to England from Scotland in 1603. And they seemed to have a meeting of minds, even though the Earl of Rutland was actually a closet Catholic and James was, of course, quite a puritanical monarch. Um, they, they had a, a great deal else in common and James loved to hunt in the grounds of Beaver and they would discuss politics. The other thing that united them was a passion for witch hunting and that's really where they found a common interest. Do we know how much um, James's love of witch hunting was kind of developed through this relationship or was it something that he had anyway? I think it's something he very much had anyway. I think this this obsession with witchcraft began when he was King of Scotland and he had been um, betrothed to Anne of Denmark. And in a uncharacteristically brave and romantic gesture, he decided to go and fetch Anne himself because she tried to sail over to Scotland and been battered back by violent storms. But when James tried to sail across, he was he almost lost his life because it was such a violent tempest. And when he eventually reached Denmark, Denmark was gripped by witch hunting fervour too, as was Scotland. And it was whispered to James that perhaps witches had been to blame and that they'd conjured up spells to bring about this storm and cause the death of the king. And from that moment on, James became absolutely convinced that witches were a force of evil in his kingdom and he needed to get rid of them. And he rounded up about 70 mostly women whom he believed had been part of this plot to bewitch his fleet and make it sink and, and cause the death of their king. The book touches on the fact that he begins to see himself as God's tool, kind of his instrument to do this work. That's right. And he makes lots of reference to that. You know, he's basically his theme is that he's God's representative, God's advocate here on earth uh, to do his bidding. And so everything is sanctioned by God. And he makes that very clear in the book that he writes about uh, witchcraft demonology. He's the only monarch to do so. Um, he makes it clear that, you know, God has appointed him for this task. He seems absolutely convinced about that and about the justice of his cause. Mm. Going back to the, you know, the children in this case, do we know why they became ill? Is that is that any way clear? Well, there are symptoms um, that they displayed, which are uh, very, very similar to epilepsy. And, and um, it was it was said at the time by some medical authorities that they had the falling sickness, as it, it was known. And of course, it was quite a terrifying illness because there would be convulsions and foaming at the mouth and sudden fevers. And, and, and so people, it looked like people were suddenly bewitched. It came on very, very quickly, as we know today. So I think it, it may well have been, and modern day um, uh, doctors and physicians have analysed the symptoms of those boys and they said that they are, you know, very much in line with, with what we would expect from epileptics today. Mm. So given that we've touched on the fact that they weren't that popular in the community anyway, what role did other people kind of local to them play in their being blamed for this? They were absolutely instrumental. It seems, ironically, even though the Earl was interested in witch hunting, that that it was the servants at the castle, it was the people of the local community who were really responsible for the witch hunt. The Earl and his wife didn't want to listen to the rumours at first about the flower women. I think they, they thought quite highly of them. 
Um, so it was very much a witch hunt by the local community. Their flower women were deeply unpopular. It was said that they were immoral. They would welcome men into their house at all hours of the, the night. Um, they were always uttering curses against their neighbours. Basically, nobody liked this family and they wanted to get rid of them. And so it was started from the bottom up. It wasn't a case of the Earl and his wife just sacking these women because they immediately thought they were to blame. It was only after an intense pressure from the other servants in the castle that they decided to act. So what happened next? So I think it was probably the Countess who ordered their arrest because the Earl was then at court in London celebrating Christmas with the King. And uh, the flower women were arrested. There is no evidence that they were tortured at that stage. But um, I think circumstantially, it's very, very possible because what you tend to get in this in this period, even though torture is is illegal, um, except for um, for traitors, um, what it's sort of a case of vigilante justice, really, by the local community. And I think lots of um, witches were swum, you know, when they were they were tied up and and dunked in their local lake. And if they sank, they were innocent. And if they if they rose to the top, they were they were they were guilty. So um, a lot of this went on. And I think it's quite possible that the local community subjected Joan and her daughters to this, because when they'd only gone about 10 miles north of Beaver Castle on their journey to Lincoln, Joan uh, suddenly fell down dead. Now, it's said that she had called for a trial by bread, whereby um, she said, if, if I can eat this piece of bread and don't choke on it, then I am innocent. And the reason it was thought that um, that was a proper trial is that, of course, bread was representative of Christ's body. And so anyone evil would not be able to take it into their own body. And it's said that Joan took this piece of bread and as she tried to swallow it, she choked and died. Um, and so when they did reach trial, what happened then? Well, um, so her daughters, Margaret and Philippa, made it to Lincoln. They were interrogated for several weeks and placed in what's still known as the witch's hole, a particularly awful, dank, dark, disease-ridden dungeon in Lincoln Castle. Eventually, they reached uh, their trial in March 1619. Now, um, suspected witches were not allowed any form of defence. They had to defend themselves. They weren't given any counsel. And it seems that Margaret and Philippa, according to the contemporary account, were completely unrepentant. They said, absolutely, we're witches. Uh, we've been consorting with devils while we're in prison. You know, can we believe this? I, I think it's it's rather suspect uh, myself, unless they were just, you know, so terrified by what stood before them that they'd become kind of hysterical, which is a possibility. Um, it didn't take very long at all, probably as little as 20 minutes, the average witchcraft trial was, to reach a verdict. And of course, that that verdict was guilty. And just um, a few days later, the girls were taken to um, the outskirts of the castle where they were hanged in front of a large crowd. I mean, so there seems there's no winners uh, in this at all. Um, but there is some evidence in the book that you suggest there's been a miscarriage of justice so that someone gains from this. That's is that right? right? That's right. Um, and while I don't want wish to sort of do a witch hunt of my own, I think there is more than circumstantial evidence to point the finger of blame. Actually, the Duke of Buckingham. Now, he was the king's great favourite. And how was he involved? Well, he wanted to marry the Earl of Rutland's daughter. She was uh, the daughter from his first marriage. So the half sister of those two boys who died. And um, it was only when the second boy died and he survived about six or seven years longer than his brother. 
It's only when he died that Buckingham finally agreed to marry Catherine, uh, the half-sister, because she now stood to inherit the entire Rutland fortune. It was one of the richest and most distinguished families in the country. So he had a lot to gain. Uh, he was known to retain a, um, a poisoner on his books. Uh, his mother, who also dabbled in poisons, lived very close to Beaver. Now, all of this admittedly is fragmentary evidence so i'm not saying that he absolutely had a hand in those two boys deaths but he certainly had a stronger motive than the flower women and he also commissioned after their deaths a um basically a whitewash um, account of their trial, which just completely left no room for doubt of their guilt. Now, why would he have paid for that publication? He also paid for the youngest son's funeral very, very quickly after his death. So he was buried almost immediately. Um, and, you know, there were whispers that, you know, he didn't want the boy's body examined too closely. So who knows? But it's just interesting to speculate that, in fact, this couldn't have been just an ordinary witchcraft trial. It may have been a conspiracy. And talking about people gaining from all this, what did James stand to gain from um, spreading the idea of witchcraft? I think for him, it was very much a personal crusade, an ideological one. He he uh, he wasn't necessarily going to get more power uh, by it. I don't think that's what it was about. He genuinely had very, very strong convictions that, that witches were evil and that they needed to be rooted out. And I think he came to believe his own image as being the, um, you know, God's representative on earth and, and to do away with witches. But the thing is with James is, is that he was quite fickle really he tended to get these obsessions and they wouldn't necessarily last all that long now which the witchcraft one lasted admittedly probably longer than any of other james of james's obsessions but by the time of his death in 1625 uh, it was said that he was more interested in hunting deer than he was in hunting witches he'd completely cooled off on the whole thing and uh, the, the witch hunts really died down as a result it's strange that one person's kind of psychology can affect a whole nation to such an extent isn't it Oh, completely. And, and James really was a figurehead. And that's why you get the likes of you know, Shakespeare writing Macbeth. Um, and then there's Dr. Faustus by Marlowe, you know, the, the, to flatter the king. Society wanted to believe uh, in the same thing as the king, or at least to be seen to believe. And so it was enormously influential. Here was this king. He was publishing books on witchcraft. He was watching plays about it. He was giving speeches about it. So, of course, if you want to get in with the king, you've got to pretend to be as passionate about rooting out witches from society. What can all this teach us about women in the period and their social position? Uh, I think one historian very rightly wrote that it wasn't just witch hunting, it was woman hunting. As many as 85% of those convicted uh, were women. And actually, the percentage was really high um, in this country. Um, uh, and for example, in, in France, uh, it was only about 50-50 it was about 50 50 between men and women. But on the whole, if you average it out, women were definitely the more numerous uh, along, among the, um, those convicted for witchcraft. And so it was very much a misogynistic craze. It was about putting women back in their place. They'd started to get more independence, um, perhaps during the, the later medieval period. 
And the Pope uh, in the 15th century was instrumental. Uh, he published a, a bull against uh, against witches, and it was very much in the feminine gender, the wording of the bull. And this was followed by a whole rash of publications. And suddenly people were interpreting the Bible's references to witches in the feminine gender, even though actually they're not. Um, you, that, that there are male witches, there are female witches in the Bible. But it became an excuse to really put women in their place in society, a shocking way of doing so. And women were already subservient to men, but this really just took it to a different level altogether. Mm. You touched on there that James was fickle and eventually kind of abandoned this idea to some extent. Do we get a sense of at what point the idea in society generally kind of died down? Well, it was remarkably enduring. Of course, the, the the real fire had gone out of witch hunting by the time of James's death, but it came back with dramatic effect during the Civil War when you get the witch finder general, Matthew Hopkins, with that sudden brief craze in the middle of the 17th century. But after that, it really is on the wane and you get the rise of more um, rational scientific thinking. Although, that's a too simplistic to say suddenly people understood more about the world, therefore they didn't believe in witches. It, it was still quite a deep-seated belief. And, and even today, you know, that people are still, um, they have little suspicions, they might have little rituals, they might not necessarily believe in them in the same way. But, but we still do lots of things, you know, just our phraseology, oh, fingers crossed and that kind of thing. You know, that it's still alive today. And, and then, you know, more seriously, uh, movements such as, as Wicca, um, I've been contacted by lots of people from that from that movement since publishing my book, and I'm now I think I was sort of you know top of the Wicca books bestsellers lists or something like that. Oh you know, wow! Which is <laughs> not something I've ever been before. Um, so it's obviously still an incredibly popular uh, movement, but it's gone back to being positive. So it's much more about white witches and about you know using magic and witchcraft for good in society. I think. Mm. Talking about your research, what sources did you use most when you were kind of writing the book? Well, um, I did a lot of research into the archives of Beaver Castle. So even sort of what looks like on the surface, very dry documents such as account books and the like, they're very revealing about the flower women's time at the castle and what they were up to and their, their loss of status, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but most of my research took place in the British Library uh, and it was it involved many, many contemporary pamphlets which were written to record the individual witchcraft trials and particularly the one, of course, of the of the flower women but these were an amazing resource for uh the historian because you know they might not necessarily be um incredibly accurate but they they reflect what people thought of witches at the time so they were written in kind of shocked uh language and and to aim to whip up popular fear and and suspicion of witches in their local community so they're an absolutely fantastic source what would you say was a thing that most surprised you in the course of your research I think what most surprised me, I mean, apart from the you know, potential scandal of the Duke of Buckingham's um, involvement, was just the scale of the witch hunts and, you know, just how um, little chance these women stood and that they could, you know, an accusation was enough. An accusation stood up in court. They didn't need a confession. They didn't need any corroborating evidence. So really, if you're accused then pretty much you could be sure that either 
you were going to lose your life or your life would be ruined because even if you were acquitted at trial, you would be the black sheep of your community. And there's many accounts, uh, horrific accounts of the abuse that was heaped onto women who'd been acquitted uh, for witchcraft and, and basically their lives weren't worth living. So it was just the sheer terror. And I really got a sense of that sheer terror that women must have felt at the time and just how easy it was to be convicted as a witch. Mm, it's scary, isn't it? Um, and what message about the period do you hope that people take away from the book? Well, I think, you know, we might not still believe in witches in the same way, but I think we probably, or society and the world generally still has, you know, witch hunts of a type. There's still, you know, there's, uh, diff- it, we, we've seen in, in, you know, living memory, the Holocaust, and and just how terrifying uh, movements like that can be, where you know it just takes one charismatic figure to convince people that there's an evil in society; it needs to be rooted out. And and the Holocaust was really like the witch hunts of its time. And and so you know, it it, it is quite quite um, disturbing to think that actually this is a recurring theme in society. One likes to think that we're becoming more rational all the time and, you know, a more enlightened society, but it's still possible to have witch hunts of different kinds, I think. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. That was Tracy Borman. Tracy's new book, Witches, A Tale of Sorcery, Scandal and Seduction, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. And Tracy has also written a piece for our October issue about King James VI and I's involvement in the witch craze. Also in this month's magazine, we're investigating the mystery of the princes in the Tower, we're examining the Victorians' obsession with murder, we're highlighting Britain's fashion icons, and we're challenging some myths of the Blitz. If any of that takes your fancy, then why not pick up a copy at all good newsagents, or try one of our digital formats. 
And speaking of our digital formats, if you own an iPad, you can now access our Battle of Flodden interactive article free of charge. Simply download the BBC History magazine app and you can get it from there. With no postal service in England in the 15th century, sending letters could often prove quite a challenge. Deborah Thorpe, who has been studying messages from the period, spoke to our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, about the letter writing and sending process and about what such documents can tell us about the sender and the recipient. Um, So, Deborah, your feature examines how letters and parcels were sent from A to B in medieval England, and it it does sound like a rather complicated process, which we'll go into in a little bit. But firstly, what what sort of people were writing letters at this time, and for what sort of reasons? Um, There was really a vast array of people, different kinds of people that would send letters. Um, Since the subject matter of letters is so diverse, um, it sort of ranges from royalty um, down to the aristocracy, um, to gentry and merchants who... Uh, And really, the subject matter ranges from anything from property administration, the management of servants... um, the conducting business via letters um, or, of course, something that concerned a lot of letter writers at the time, which was um, the management of legal issues um, and addressing uh, legal matters at court. And what would a medieval letter have actually looked like and you know, how was it written and presented and you know, what did the actual physical letter look like at the end of the process? Um, So a medieval letter would always begin with an opening formula of address Mm -hmm. and that would be the equivalent of our dear sir, dear madam, but it can often be very surprising in um, how elaborate it is um, because the opening formula of address really established the relationship between the sender and the recipient. Um, So you could establish the level of formality. Um, If you were writing to a superior, you might address the person you're writing to as the right honourable and well-beloved friend. Um, Or if you were writing to someone who's um, below you in status, you would use a completely different formula. Um, It's very um, codified and uh, very important that they would get the right form of address. And then you would move on to the main body of the letter, which would deal with um, a sequence of different matters that the sender wanted to address. Um, And then followed by the closing formula, which was as important as the opening formula and often wished the addressee um, good wishes for their health um, and uh, offered a a return address for how they could send their reply. Okay, And how, you know, what was actually written on and what with? Um, The most common um, material for letters was paper um, in the 15th century or the later Middle Ages that I deal with in my research um, and written with ink. um, And I found an example in the Paston letters of uh, a letter being needed to be be sent very quickly. um, And so the letter's ink is dried with the ashes from the chimney by the sender of the letter at the time. Hmm. And and were they, you know, did they put them in envelopes or, you know, a, a medieval version of an envelope or were they just folded and, and sent? Um, well, the security of the letter was very important. Um, who got access to that letter was very important. So the letter would usually be folded and then tied up with a piece of a strip of paper, perhaps recycled from a piece of scrap. And then a seal, a wax seal would be applied Um with which the recipients of the letter could tell whether someone had already opened it and read it. 
And, and presumably, the, the sort of letters that, that you've been studying have been written by sort of mainly middle class and upper class people um, who, who could actually write. Is that Was that the case? Or have you found anything sort of surprising? Um, well, the... Um the highest of the high status people would generally use scribes and those scribes would be usually literate members of the household, so literate servants um, who could be of surprisingly high status themselves. They were often um, the second son of a local um, family who had quite a bit of um, independent wealth, um, but often servants of the household would correspond with each other. Um, and that's often quite interesting because the letters might display different um, dialect features than ones that were written for um, the gentleman, the lord of the house. So that's quite an interesting feature. Okay. So your letter's been written um, and it's all ready to go. What, what happened next? How did you ensure that it got where, it, where you wanted it to go? Well, the next um, stage in the letter um, sending process would be to find a messenger. Uh, and that could often be quite a troublesome task in itself. Um, the preferred option would be to use one of your own servants because you knew them very well and often the recipients of the letter might know them also. Um, so you could establish a relationship between yourself and the recipient by using a well-trusted servant. Um, but Often servants just simply weren't available because they were needed for other duties. So in which case you might hire a messenger. Um, and there's several pieces of evidence for people paying uh, messengers who might be not so well known to the sender of the letter. Um, and then finally, you could send it along with some goods that you might be sending around the country, um, which was a useful way of sending a letter if you were, if it was going along a well-established trade route, such as between Norwich and London. So there were professional messengers, and that that was their job. That they they sort of um, they took letters for various people as and when needed. Absolutely. Um, that's part of my current research, which is looking into the work of professional messengers, because it's something that hasn't really been researched a great deal up until this point. Um, but there is evidence within um, books of accounts for professional messengers having been paid for their services. And could you have earned quite a comfortable living doing that? Um, that's another thing that more research needs to be done on at the moment um, about the payment of messengers and how they might earn a living or whether they have another source of income. Um, but um, from what the research that I've done so far, it's clear to see that it really depended on what kind of messenger you were. Um, the messengers that were used by royalty, for example, um, I found one piece of ex uh, evidence to show that they were paid, one royal messenger was paid twice as much as a, a normal messenger who was just taking um, businessmen or merchants' letters. Mm, okay, it's quite interesting, isn't it? The mm. different levels of you know of you know people who could who could take those sorts of letters. Absolutely. And travelling in medieval England could be pretty dangerous. So, um, you know, what sort of hazards could a messenger face en route, and how did they make sure that they their letter cargo you know remained safe for the journey? Um, as I've mentioned before, um, after the security of the letter was of paramount importance, um, especially if you were sending evidence for a legal case or um, there's one example of a member of the Seeley family who were based in between Calais and London sending gold with their letters. So it was very important that the letter wasn't intercepted by unfriendly hands. Um, so there was the risk of 
the letter being lost or, or misdirected or intercepted by um, an unfriendly person. Um, and there's one example that I found um, from the Paston family correspondence of some money that was being sent from Norwich to London for safekeeping. And the person who was taking the money accidentally put a letter in with the bag and sent it to London instead of it being sent on to its direct, um, intended address in Norfolk. So um, it was very clear that there was a very real risk of letters being lost or misdirected. And do we know whether messengers would not get paid if they didn't deliver their their, their letters in you know a certain amount of time or by you know a deadline? Um, that's something as well that I'm looking into because there seems to be some evidence that um, messengers would be paid on the delivery of their letter, which of course meant that they were especially eager to reach their point of delivery on time and with the correct item that they're supposed to be carrying. Um, but there is evidence that still um, some messengers didn't go to the greatest um, efforts to take their letter on time. Um, there is one example um, from the Paston correspondence of um, a, a letter writer handing a letter to the messenger and then the messenger didn't leave Norwich for five days. So <laughs> the letter obviously didn't, uh, didn't reach its direction at the intended time. But there's still less chance of them sort of chucking it over a hedge and pretending they delivered it. <laughs> Absolutely. And there is um, some evidence of uh, messengers going to a great deal of effort to um, to reach the recipient, um, such as um, staying over for a night or waiting around until, and on one occasion, waiting around until someone had re returned from um hunting with his hawk so the messenger actually waited until he returned home and then handed the letter over which indicates that perhaps he was waiting for his payment okay and i mean today's postmen don't usually have to act as intermediaries but um in your feature you mentioned that medieval messengers often had to act as diplomats when they arrived at their destination why why was that hmm um well there are several different reasons um Perhaps because often um, correspondents might be nurturing very unstable relationships between each other, um, such as in Norfolk in the 15th century, there was a very complex county politics and often um, letters were used as a way of nurturing uh, relationships between neighbours. And in my letter, I, um, I talk about um, Catherine, the servant of Margaret Paston, who um, took a letter on behalf of Margaret Paston to one of their um, one of their enemies in the region and she was actually required to act as a diplomat um, because no male servant was willing to take the message and there is evidence that she was received very well and she was um, treated very kindly by the recipient so it seems that she did her job very well. So presumably when you employed a messenger you'd want to know that they were you know, able to do that sort of thing when they were delivering this letter, they weren't going to make matters worse. Of course, and that's another good reason why you would use a servant, because you would know them well. Um, you might choose a servant um, who would be appropriate to take that message according to their relationship with the recipient, whether they'd met them before and they were able to um, provide a, sp a spoken element to accompany the written words. Um, 
And often, of course, um, not all of not the entire message would be committed to the page, um, especially if it was sensitive information that you might not want to leave a written record of. So the servant might provide that message by mouth and speak the message so as not to create that written record. It sounds like there's a lot of trust put into these servants and messengers. Um, you know, they were sort of handling quite often quite sensitive information you know, that, that could be used you know, against their employer. Um, so is, is that quite normal? Um, it seems so. There's a lot of evidence for a huge amount of trust that's being given to um, servants, certainly, who are taking letters. Um, William Worcester, who was um, the secretary of Sir John Fastolf, was um, a very highly trusted servant. Um, there is evidence of him um, being part of the administration of Fastolf's will. Um, so he was obviously someone who would be trusted to give the message accurately and to convey um, his master's wishes um, accurately and appropriately. And have you found any evidence to the contrary, you know, so people who have not delivered messages properly or, or have, you know, maybe um, open letters and things like that and they haven't reached their intended destination? Um, I haven't found any direct evidence, but I have found evidence of anxiety um, from uh, letter writers, um, letter writers who will write and check up that a letter has reached its destination, which indicates that they were half expecting it to have been lost or um, and there's also evidence of um, an antagonistic relationship between two letter writers who um, one of them writes to say, please don't blame the, the letter bearer for this. So obviously there's some evidence that the letter bearer might be, the messenger might indeed have been shot. So that's, <laughs> that's where that it point. comes from, that, that, that term, it, I suppose. It seems so. I mean, they're being entrusted with a lot of responsibility. So um it seems that, especially if they were a trusted servant, a well-respected servant, the, ma the master would try their utmost to um, protect their reputation. And what happened to those letters after they were delivered? Were they usually kept and stored somewhere or, you know, were they destroyed? Um, well, we have um, the great storage methods of the Paston family to thank for the survival of many of these letters now. Um, the Pastons were very preoccupied with storing their letters. Um, and um, Sir John Fastolf, who, whose letters I have been studying, um, he had a specialised storage system in his uh, manor house at Caister Castle in uh, Norfolk. Um, and although he did store his letters, there's some evidence that perhaps his storage system wasn't really um, up to the task of uh, retrieval of those letters once they'd been put away. Um, his stepson, Stephen Scroop, who spent a lot of time at Caister Castle, uh, wrote um, to say, wrote to one of Fastolf's other servants to say that um, he'd had difficulty finding a letter that had been put away in the storage area. So, uh, although they were storing letters, perhaps they weren't so easy to find afterwards. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and but, but presumably, letters of a sensitive nature would have been destroyed then. Um, well, um, the fact that the instructions to destroy these letters survive mm. indicate that not all of them actually were destroyed. Um, obviously, it's impossible to know how many were, mm. um, but um, 
that unfortunately for the people that requested for letters to be destroyed, there was an equal desire to keep evidence. Um, written evidence was of great use in legal cases. And we know that letters of correspondence were used as evidence in legal cases. So the desire to destroy written records was equaled by the desire to keep them. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of your research does seem to have been around correspondence relating to the Paston family. And I mean, I remember studying them as a student and I, mm. they really are a remarkable set of documents. Um, what have you learned from them? And, and are they, do you think they're typical of families of the period? Well, if, well, the Paston correspondence is remarkable for its volume. It's remarkable for the array of different subject matters that are dealt with in the letters. Um the corpus is very uh, rich in social information, rich in political information. So it's of great interest to scholars and members of the public alike. Um, but there are other um, corpora of letters that survive from the 15th century. Um, perhaps they're not quite so lively in their content, but they do survive. There's um, the, Seeley mem the Seeley family correspondence, which I mentioned earlier, um, which is very interesting because it involves letters passing to and forth between Calais and London and it deals with the lives of um, people who were in, involved in the wool trade in Calais. Um, so that tells us a lot about medieval trade and medieval craft. Um, and then if you're interested in other geographical areas, there's the Plumpton family of Yorkshire. And they had a quite a, a substantial body of letters that have survived um, but they have been comparatively understudied compared to the Paston family so there's still a great deal of work to be done on medieval letters. Mm. And what do you think they can sort of tell us about what was going on around around these families at the time? Well the great thing about medieval letters is um, they really show uh, they appeal to us because they show similarities between medieval people and modern people but they also show great um, differences so they're of great interest to um, to historians and members of the public who want to know about the way that family relationships were conducted the way that marriages were arranged and um, the way that properties were managed um, all those kind of things that um, are of great interest to historians letters contain information about um, so I think really the, the diversity of subject matter um, that letters deal with is of great appeal. Mm, so you'd recommend people having a look at looking up the, the Passon family, would you, to get a feel for medieval medieval oh, England? Absolutely. And I, I think I, um, I spoke in my article about um, an altercation between servants that were associated with the Fastolf, the, with the um, Paston family, sorry. And um, it's so lively, the subject matter is so lively that um, it just draws you in and it makes you want to read about their day-to-day -day lives. And the other thing that comes out of the Paston family is um, the great strength of the women of the Paston family, uh, Margaret Paston, who was left um, at their estate in, in Norfolk to manage the property whilst her husband was away for vast periods of time. Um, and she was not only, only managing um, a substantial estate, but she was dealing with um, problems between the Pastons and their neighbours. And in, in my article, I talk about... Um, 
the defense of the property against attackers and she was administrating that whole process so it tells us a great deal about women in the 15th century yeah and was that a, co- a common occurrence then for women to have been left in charge of estates um well that's the um the great appeal of the paston letters really it tells us about one woman and her her role in estates and i think that's why they're unique um but certainly that doesn't come out as much from other corpora of letters. So I think that's one of the reasons the Paston letters is so appealing yeah. to us. And, and when and why did this system of delivering posts change? Um, well, I discuss and I gave a, um, a reference to um, Duncan Campbell Smith's book on the um, the the masters of the post, um, the sort of official postal system that was introduced in the 16th century. Um the first master of the post was um, appointed in 1512 and that really came out of a desire to regulate this quite rather difficult postal system okay. <laughs> to sort of bring some reliability into it um, and that was implemented by royalty. Um, there was a desire to establish a royal post and that was done by uh, appointing um, horse Uh, horse riding messengers who would be appointed at different points across the country and one would ride to the next and one would ride to the next so that was really the first um, official postal system and that was established in 1512 but that book is very interesting in charting the development of what we might recognize today as a postal system yeah but i mean people still use their servants and and other people to deliver personal messages oh i think so most definitely um this this royal official postal system took a long time to to sort of hit the ground and Mm. um certainly um people of the gentry or even the um, aristocracy would still be using this more informal system to deliver letters as we know any sort of official system takes a while to um get established (laughs) That was Deborah Thorpe. You can read more about Medieval Post in an article that appeared in our September issue, which is still available to order as a back issue and, of course, digitally. Find more details of all this at our website, historyextra.com. And that is almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might even read it out in a future episode. Plus, you can follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra. Plus, there's Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website where, as well as subscription deals, you can find history news, blogs, features, image galleries, and lots more. Next week, we'll be talking about murders with Lucy Worsley, and we'll be heading to the Neolithic with Richard Bradley. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced, as ever, by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.